0: welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Recently returned from San Francisco. Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And over in San Francisco, Vanity Fair senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. Hello. So, this week we'll be sharing the interview that Richard did with Kelly Reichert, the director of Certain Women, which uh, debuted at the New York Film Festival and is in limited theaters now. It stars Kristen Stewart, Michelle Williams, Laura Dern, among other very talented actresses. As we've discussed throughout the season, it's a really good year for actresses. There's a lot of really powerful performances out there, including in Certain Women, uh, which might be the reason behind the week's big Oscar news, which is that Viola Davis is submitting as a Best Supporting Actress for Fences. None of us have seen Fences. As far as I know, no one has seen Fences it might not even be finished yet.
1: Well, actually, oh. I think I can say this oh. because Pete Hammond sent it out to all the Gold Derby nerds, of which I am one, on yeah. an email. He says Denzel is locking the picture on November 4th. I don't know if that's true.
0: Ah, just but, so He gets it done before the election so he can really focus on a yeah. election night. <laughs> so, right, exactly. So I don't know. So,
2: until then, we're all still chasing fences. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, and right now he's...
2: <laughs> And right now,
1: I understand he's frantically cutting scenes with Viola to justify oh, yeah. supporting. Oh, so,
0: yeah. So, yeah. So, Viola Davis.
1: That. I think we could trim five seconds off the end of that uh, <laughs> yeah. monologue. So, for
0: any, you know, she's the, the the female lead of the movie, so that would automatically seem like a leading role. But Fences is just an August Wilson play that people have seen. People are familiar with this role. So, I haven't actually seen Fences, but this is category fraud, right? Like, she has no business being supporting Well, she
2: actress. won the lead Tony Award for it, the same role. Which is <laughs> crazy.
0: But I was... I was reading an article that
3: said the original actress who was in fences won the best supporting yeah. Tony so yeah, it could go true. either way well. yeah
1: that uh, that's what Pete pointed out in this email that I'm yeah. quoting from liberally during this podcast <laughs> but that it, it has been a t- supporting in the past so it's not I, I don't yeah. know
2: that it's like outright. But also, larceny
1: but it's definitely it's,
2: you know I read something also that in order to make this stage play more cinematic that when August Wilson who did his own adaptation added more for both the male and female leads. so the really? part might even be bigger than it is on stage so it does really feel like that's not a supporting role <laughs> I mean I guess I agree. You know. well yeah.
0: but I think we all can see the you know the strategic reason behind this as sure. we talked about last week or 2 weeks ago the best actress race is incredibly competitive And Viola Davis, I think is, it's hard to say anyone's overdue for an Oscar, but I think Viola Davis would qualify for that if anyone would. So if this is her best shot at an Oscar, can we really be mad at her?
2: No, I guess not. It just, it's sort of more, I think it sort of lays bare sort of more more the strategy of this thing. And it's like, I just want, I want the award. So I'm just going to, you know, do it in whatever way I can possible, which is good. I mean, we, in a purest sense, we kind of, we want them to win for the appropriate Thing because the mm-hmm. best actress feels more significant than the best supporting. But hey, if it gets her award and that's what they all chose to do because the actors do get a say in that. Yeah. look, you know.
1: Well, but even though I demand that this episode be named How to Get Away with Category Fraud, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that Viola is necessarily the driving force behind this right. at all, right? Because there are a bunch of people involved in this decision, the studio. I'm sure Viola gets to say if she's okay with it. But I would think that the that the people releasing the film, the filmmakers, everybody's going to make a calculation based on what's best for the film. I'm doing air quotes with mm-hmm. my fingers. You can't see this at home and saying, look, if we win an Oscar, that gives the film more legs and makes sure more people see it over time than if we get nominated but don't win. And we've made a calculation. I mean, imagine having that conversation with Viola. though, You can't win actress or maybe it's just like your percentage is higher
0: yeah i think the percentage thing that's a pretty strong your argument percentage i mean i'd higher. go with that
1: right um, do you want to stand up there and give a speech or not
3: <laughs> i was i was looking at her previous losses to sort of get an idea of her oscar narrative and I, you know i remembered that she lost to meryl streep for the iron lady in the same year that octavia spencer won the oscar for best supporting for the help so like and if,
0: viola was if, nominated for the help and best actress
3: in lead and so like if viola had been in supporting in that year, I. Definitely think she would have won and then the first time she lost for doubt she lost to penelope cruz for vicky Cristina barcelona in the supporting actor category and i would say that cruz was dabbling in category of fraud by being supporting for vicky Cristina barcelona oh, really? so like i think so like um it's hard to say there are three, three women in that movie. So, you know, I guess you could divvy it up and say they're all supporting if you wanted to. But I don't know. I I could see a narrative where even if this was not Viola's, like, first choice to do this, the previous two losses sort of add up to the math that Mike's talking about in terms of I have a better chance in supporting category. I don't want to lose again. I don't want Viola to lose again. No, so, none of us do. You know.
0: I mean, so this brings up the question of what really defines category fraud. And as we were discussing before uh, we came into the studio, I think women are subject to this more often because you get so many movies about men that are considered serious. And then women are playing the supportive wife-girlfriend role. Uh, last year, Alicia Vikander won for the supportive wife character, who a lot of people thought was a lead actress. And she mm-hmm. and she was in that category with actual supporting players like Jennifer Jason Lee or uh, Rachel McAdams in Spotlight. And they just didn't have the amount of screen time to compare it to. She was also in there with Rudy Mar, who was the lead of Carol. So there's multiple category fraud going on last year.
2: Yeah, and the Carol thing was tricky because there were two lead actresses in that movie, and... I think it hasn't happened in many years that two people have been nominated in lead for the same film.
0: At least women, it might yeah, happen I think with for them women more often.
2: And that was a kind of more backstage Weinstein Company wrangling thing, and, I, and it was a really late minute decision to put her in supporting because she didn't originally want to do it.
0: Well, and who would have guessed it would have worked? I didn't think it was going to work. Right,
2: right. So
1: that you know that was tricky. But it's a very Weinstein thing to do, and there's at least one next Weinstein. Person working on this film, so mm-hmm. you know they they take this very seriously as a sport with percentages right. versus the pure thing that you're talking about. Although I do think it's interesting. Like, is there a written definition for what lead actor, lead actress, and supporting? I is? don't think so. It's, it's all submission. I mean, it seems like at least the people who want to maximize their chances base and and give themselves optionality would define it as as long as there's somebody else in the movie with more screen time. You know, right. you can be supporting. Right. Yeah, well, that's the yeah. whole.
0: Um, you know, Anthony Hopkins won Best Actor for Silence of the Lambs, and he's got like 18 minutes of screen. maybe not that, too, but not <laughs> no. It's right. in the teens. Yeah, but, he but he's is a white actor.
1: man, so well, I did think he was the lead of the movie. Of actually, movie. his presence
0: right. in that movie is so powerful that you can't imagine anyone else. I mean, you that's know, true. Jodie Foster also won Best Actress, so you know they weren't kind of shafting he, her as. A now, result. if Jodie
1: Foster had run for supporting, <laughs> yeah, that would that would have been, been, been really epic. That would have been
0: insane. There's also the like. Mm, the narrative that I
3: think condemns Hollywood or maybe the Academy of the past than anything else, but the fact that, you know, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six black women have won in the best supporting actress category and Holly Berry is still the only black actress yeah. to win in lead. You know, we like to think that that this is not an issue at all. In the Oscar race, and I know that the Academy is making strides towards a more inclusive class and all of that, but that's another percentage to add to the pile, I think.
0: Yeah, and you know? it's, I mean, Viola Davis, even though it is a really competitive year, would have stood a really good shot at making her way through the Best Actress field. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's a lot of white women and Ruth Nega for loving, and I, from what I hear, that's a really powerful performance, but she doesn't have the same kind of heat that Natalie Portman, Emma Stone, and Annette Bening have. So yeah. it, it does feel like a missed opportunity for that particular stat. And I
2: feel like, I mean... Maybe it's in technical categories, but like I feel like Ruth Nega might be the only nomination that movie gets. Mm just from kind of judging the its heat right now.
1: I think you're right that Ruth probably not as of right now got a chance to go up against Emma Stone and Natalie Portman and Viola 100% did. I mean people were just like forget Emma Stone when we were talking about this two weeks ago.
0: Well Viola Davis is an Emmy winner. She's a multiple Oscar nominee. She's a Tony winner. Like she is kind of royalty in this way and Ruth Nega is more of an up-and-comer which can be very powerful in a Best Actress race.
1: But it's interesting because one of the things about kind of playing percentages and approaching this like a sport And looking at past patterns to base your behavior is that you do end up perpetuating this kind of stuff, you Mm -hmm. know, so that if the if the whole category fraud originated partly out of people going, oh, but she's the girl in the movie, Mm -hmm. you know, let's put her over there. But now people see, oh, that's a more surefire way to get an Oscar. It ends up perpetuating things that maybe no one actually embraces, believes in now, or at least hopefully fewer people.
0: Well, what's crazy is sometimes the girl in the movie does wind up in Best Actress. That's how Reese Witherspoon gets her Best Actress statue, because that year there weren't, it just wasn't as competitive a year for Best Actress. So it really, it varies Uh, wildly uh, based on what else is out there.
2: In other years, I think that Witherspoon would have been run and supporting for sure. Oh,
0: definitely. Right, right. Yeah. Also, uh, we were talking about Jodie Foster earlier. The last time, as far as I can tell, two actresses from the same movie were nominated for Best Actor, was Thelma and Louise. Right, yeah. Uh, and they both lost to Jodie Foster. Ah, Fun fact. there you go. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing about Viola coming into Supporting Actress, we talked about it on the show. It's There's a lot of really good performances in there. Michelle Williams in Manchester by the Sea, we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Naomi Harris in Moonlight. But there's no one kind of really running away with it the way, like, Anne Hathaway was the year of Lame is. Like, right. Viola coming in there is almost like, all right, well, then there you go. And no one's even seen the movie yet, so.
2: yeah
1: kind of it, feel it's like a way to get a surefire oscar you look at emma you look at natalie and just go why do i want to turn that into a three-person race let yeah. me just take the other one i think that's all it is
2: yeah no i think you're right when the news broke yesterday what was sort of confirmed i was like oh well michelle williams just lost
3: <laughs> yeah. I, you know
2: i thought well, she we was definitely win. talking
3: about her yeah, yeah. I yeah.
2: Know. so i mean that's fine i don't think she doesn't strike me as somebody who like really is intensely into that stuff but who knows you know never know
0: also her Oscar will come it's like Amy Adams like Michelle Williams and Amy Adams they'll win eventually they've been numbered too many times but this is about like percentage of screen time exactly because
3: Michelle Williams is so good Manchester by the Sea but she's only in it for like 15 minutes thereabouts right like so Viola just has more occasions in Fences presumably since we haven't seen it to do what Mike Hogan what did you say like the snot out of your nose yeah yeah
2: yeah crying with snot coming out of your face, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Which is in the trailer for Fences. So. <laughs> there you go. Uh, there we go. I mean,
2: one thing about the Manchester thing for Michelle Williams. Before we move on, is you know the Oscars when they win, that's a financial thing for these movies. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it there's a market bump. You know, I, I mean, probably not for supporting actress as much as like Best Picture, but it does matter. Yeah, and you know, it matters for Amazon. They spent a lot of money on this thing, and it's like a big play for them. I mean, that must be kind of a, a scary thing for them because they're like our the one like maybe sure thing is now not. Yeah.
1: yeah. Although although it looks like maybe they are going to get it with Casey. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, it would be interesting if at the end of this whole thing, Casey beats Denzel and Viola right. beats Michelle. Right. And everybody's, you know, everybody gets something. I don't right. know. Huh.
0: Well, I mean, looking at Best Supporting Actor, it's it's a lot of stuff that we haven't seen yet. I think we're talking about Liam Neeson maybe winning for Silence. But Mahershala Ali in Moonlight is going to be an interesting example of that screen time problem on the male side of things where he's a really powerful presence in Moonlight and then disappears for the rest of it. And when Barry Jenkins was on the show last week, he said that if Mahershala had been in more of the entire movie, he'd be a slam dunk for an Oscar, which I think everyone would agree with. But it's tricky. I mean, it, it doesn't happen to men as much where they're kind of, you know, pushed into supporting actor as a default, but there's going to be some interesting dynamics this year.
1: Agreed. But wait, was anyone saying Mahershala would be lead?
0: No, but like, even in supporting actor, he disappears from the movie, so like by the time it's over, you might have forgotten about him, and it it, it wouldn't be... Like, if Liam Neeson is in all of silence, then he...
1: Yeah, but although I do think that supporting... I always think of the Anne Hathaway in... um, uh, Lay Miz thing. It's like all you really need for supporting, unless you're facing someone who basically has a lead role, mm-hmm. is one incredible indelible moment, which is what I think Michelle actually had two, in Manchester by the Sea. But when well, somebody comes along and is like I was in the whole movie basically to lead but I had like five minutes less screen time <laughs> then it's hard to compete well, with well
0: that's what happened know, right? with Viola Davis in Doubt she has that amazing scene in Doubt that really put her on the map a as true a true supporting actress. role yeah, yeah and yeah. Uh, then loses <clears throat> to Penelope Cruz who is in way more Vicky Cristina Barcelona
1: well I hope Barry feels bad about structuring his film in a way that doesn't help <laughs> her show well, well maybe in, he can yeah. do a new cut <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah,
0: I think he's pretty happy with yeah. everything that's happened with like, <laughs> the so supporting
1: yeah. actors cut it's a special DVD
0: extra well, yeah, at least in Moonlight, Naomi Harris kind of stands out as the main supporting female performance, um, so she won't oh, have yeah. some problem.
2: Does that crazy, you know, limited run box office that Moonlight had last weekend, does that help that movie, you think, Oscar-wise? Yes. yes. Totally. Oh, like, the per-screen average yeah. was insane or something. Yeah, well, yeah. we got
0: an email from the film's publicist saying, hey, guys, yeah. you know, you talked about it on the podcast last week. Here's this amazing stat. So that's how, you know, that's how buzz builds. That's how people like us keep talking about a movie.
1: Well, and know. I think the first thought that I think a lot of people have watching Moonlight at a festival or whatever is like oh my god I love this movie but too bad like the world's not ready for it or too bad like no one will embrace it it's too arty it's too weird and so for it to immediately connect well it just washes that away if it continues Let's but I think so. it seems like it could continue and there's so much just good buzz about it mm-hmm. and also that New York Times review holy smokes yeah and yeah. I
3: hope it does but it did open like in the friendliest markets towards the movie right just yes. New York and LA so far yep. amazing per theater average but like so far has not hit the middle of America in any and way, we all so. remember
0: the cautionary tale of Steve Jobs which had this great per theater average opening last year in four theaters and then just tanked when they opened it wide very different yeah, kind of movie yeah but Steve
2: Jobs was too black and too gay <laughs>
0: <laughs> for that's what i've and, always thought about and, apple in general yeah.
1: <laughs> and i'm pretty sure uh the new york times didn't call
2: it the best film of the
0: year no. steve jobs right
2: <laughs> yeah that a.o scott thing was like a, a gift <laughs> for that i mean the vanity fair review was quite gloving
1: as well uh, indeed, but it came, it came out well over later i day think weekend, little gold so. men's interview with barry jenkins really put him over I the top know.
0: <laughs> i expect to be thanked Correct in the than oscar that. speech mm-hmm. so uh just remember that barry <laughs> So we're going to move on to the interview that Richard did with director Kelly Reichert of Certain Women. And uh, the movie is open in theaters, but I don't think a lot of people have seen it yet. So before we get to your interview, Richard, what's Certain Women about and what makes it interesting?
2: So it's a triptych, just like Moonlight, Um, Ah. but it's three separate stories. It's not about the same people. So it's based on short stories by a writer named Mail Malloy, and they're set in Montana. And it's this quiet look at the sort of interior lives of three different or four different women. Laura Dern's in one of them, Kristen Stewart and a great new actress named Lily Gladstone is in one, Uh, Michelle Williams, and then there's some guys played by Jared Harris and James LeGroix. And it's, you know, true to Reichert's style, really... Small and unadorned, but I think kind of whispers with a lot of interesting ideas. So she's a really interesting person to talk to. She's a you know, a film professor in most of her daily life and when she's not making a film, she's a really kind of thoughtful crafts person.
0: Alright, well we're gonna to listen to some of the trailer for certain women and then hear your interview with Kelly Reichert. I've never done this before. Well, I guess we'll just
4: start at the beginning.
0: what are you doing here I Came to see my lawyer my wife wants me out of the house you can't keep coming here your Her wife works for you no she's the boss actually
3: I wonder how much more there might be buried here
4: I was so afraid I'd get out of law school and be selling shoes mom works in a school cafeteria, my sister in a hospital laundry, so selling shoes is the nicest job a girl from my family's supposed to get.
0: It'd be so lovely to think that if I were a man, people would listen and say, okay. Uh, it would be so restful.
2: Hi, this is Richard at Vanity Fair. Is this Kelly?
4: Hi, Richard. It's Kelly.
2: How are you? Thanks for doing this.
4: Sure. Thank you.
2: So, I saw this really lovely, special, unique kind of film back in January at the premiere at Sundance, where it was received, from what I could tell, very well, which is exciting. This was not your first time uh-huh. at Sundance, obviously, and your your first film, I believe, was there in '94. Is that right?
4: Yeah, uh, River of Grass, and then Old Joy, also.
2: Right. Of course. There. Yeah.
4: Thousand. Five or six, I
2: forget. So you've had these kind of nice decade markers at that festival, and I would assume then have got to watch it change. You know, from this most recent experience, how does it compare? Like, I mean, obviously it's bigger, but at its core, do you think it still serves the same kind of purpose for a small film like yours?
4: I guess one difference is when I went in 93, I had a lot of time. Nobody wanted to talk to me. No one cared. (laughs) (laughs) So I had a lot of time to see films, and um, I didn't see any films now. And that has changed all the festival experiences. Like, I used to really discover a city and uh, go see a lot of, like, festivals were a place to go see films. Mm -hmm. And now it's much more like you're in a hotel room kind of doing press all day, and you don't really, I don't meet filmmakers the way I used to, and I don't see as many films at a festival. I mean, some of that has to do with my teaching schedule that I need. In in 93, I was more unemployed, so I had more time to just hang around festivals and watch movies, and now I have to sort of get back to work. But, I mean, I think how you experience these festivals is is exactly how, I think everyone's having their own experience. I mean, when I went in 93, the one thing I felt for sure was, you know, it was, It was so great that I was included, and it felt kind of boys' club-ish, to be honest, as far as, like, a feeling. I mean, it's so hard because, you know, it's really hard to know because I was really nervous there and out of place and admittedly kind of stoned the whole time I was there, (laughs) so I might have just been being paranoid. But I, you know, from that first festival, I made friends with Richard Glatzer, who passed away last year, but who then became an incredibly close friend for 20 years. And so, like, you can get something from a festival that's not, you go there thinking, like, it's all about what traction your film's going to get, and then you end up making a friend that's going to, like, enrich your life for 20 years. Yeah. For me, that festival has just continued, It's done nothing but support me. Right throughout the years. I I really don't know if I would have gotten any traction at all if they hadn't had me in the first place with my first film.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're a great platform for a film like Certain Women, you know, which is small and and, and kind of has a very, I think, particular set of ideas on its mind. It's a great big venue for that. When you were there this year, did you feel these waves of, of praise coming in or do you kind of try to shut that out or how do you relate to like reviews and things like that?
4: Oh, I can, don't do that while I I block all that out while I'm there. But what I did, I, know, I don't ever usually sit through a screening.
2: Okay. But Kristen
4: asked me to sit through the screening with her. And one thing that did feel really different since 93 was, like, the projection was beautiful and the sound was really great. Like, it was such a nice theater uh, as far as all of that. Which, when you're um, showing your film for the first time, you really... You know, it's even fun for yourself to experience it in a good room with good sound. And I remember it being a little more wonky back in 93. <laughs> sure. Both the theaters we were at, the Eccles and the Egyptian, were just great projection sound experiences.
2: And this is a film, Certain Women, that really benefits, I think, from a great projection and great sound. You know, it's set in Montana. Yeah. Uh, it has this very particular sense of place. And I think that's something that has really defined... For me, anyway, your career since the beginning, you know, I know you grew up in Miami, you've lived in New York, you've spent a lot of time in Oregon and now Montana. So it's been in this kind of peripatetic journey through America. With certain women in particular, how long was the process of finding those very specific locations? And when do you kind of know that this is the right spot?
4: Well, some of it's practical. I scouted uh, Oregon just out of habit. Mm -hmm. And even though I wanted to do something different, well, I first scouted Montana and then we scouted Oregon. And then I was really wanting to shoot in Boise. I really liked the look of that city. Yeah. And then Oregon lost a lot of its funding. Idaho has no support for filmmakers and seems uninterested in filmmaking happening there. And uh, Montana offered us a really generous grant. And so we went back to look at Montana and New, because, you know, part of what you're looking for is like The landscape that will work but you also need like an infrastructure where you can actually get crew and put crew up and you know get your dailies like you need some things you know because all of that the further away you are from that the more it costs the more people you have to house that's the true expense of making a film like this I've been driving through Montana several times a year for forever between on my treks from New York to Oregon and so I knew Missoula, and I knew a little bit of eastern uh Montana. So then we scouted um Butte and Billings, and we kept, like, ending up in Livingston just as a resting place. Really, I fell upon that ranch with my scout, Charlie Skinner. It's such a big place to just set out and randomly start looking for a ranch. And I was just saying, I just want a beige ranch, and we're going to, like red barn after red barn but also like finding a ranch that'll just the layout will work and at first we were looking at cattle ranches and then on our way chasing some other lead we passed the ranch and I said wow like we need something like that like that horse place we just passed and then we just pulled over and watched it for a while and eventually Charlie went up to the door and talked to the woman and she was so amazing and it was a woman who ran the ranch by herself and she had 21 horses and she had that dog that's in the movie. And I don't think she really believed we'd come back and shoot there, but she was so open. So then everything circled. It was like, this is, this just is our place. This feels yeah. like the place. I was so excited by the whole layout and the colors and the just everything about that ranch. Not even to mention the dog and the rancher. And so. Then everything had to sort of circle out from there. Then you're trying to find everything in proximity to there. And that meant shooting in Livingston, which we cheated a little bit and used some of Bozeman just to make Livingston look. You know, the thing with Livingston's a great town, but you just didn't want it to be too cute or too clean. It looks like a movie set when you're there, Yeah, you right. But it was a great place to live.
2: How long were you out there?
4: Well, there was various trips out right. there. Um, I went out there before Christmas, Neil Kopp and I went back right after Christmas, and then I think I was out there for four months. And I think there was some trip to California, because we thought the film wasn't going to happen this year. And then I went to California, and I was going to go back home. And on my last day in California, suddenly Sony came into the picture, and instead of going home, I went to Montana. And suddenly it was like, oh my god, we're making this movie, and that was in at some point in January.
2: So I'm curious about the story you had about Sony kind of coming in at the last minute and saying, "Here's the money." Or yeah, you know, you hear these stories about the financing process for independent film being kind of more complicated these days, and you know, the sort of gap between mega-budget movies and independent cinema seems to be widening. Uh-huh. Is that kind of the experience you have to brace yourself for when you're setting out to make a movie that, like, you don't really know when? this is gonna go or if it will yeah. go
4: you don't know when it's gonna go and you sort of kind of start like it with this film. you start trying to raise the money suspecting it'll take a year or so longer than you anticipate right so in sitting out a year you know we w- we thought we were gonna go on night moves and the money fell through and we had to wait a year and the film got better. I mean, you have more prep time. It's not like the worst thing that happens. It's just hard for arranging your life. Like I teach and, you know, I have to like give a heads up if I'm not going to be at my post, <laughs>
2: right. you
4: know, in way in the advance. And and so it's really, it, it's difficult in that sense. And it's hard to hold your cast together and your crew together. You don't want to be telling your Mates not to take other work if you're not really making a film. On the other hand, you might be making a film so you want to hold them and, you know, yeah, it's all happening. Don't take any other work. You know, it's a, right. it's a hairy place because you just don't want to screw anybody over and you're trying to build something that you might be building more than once and that is largely on the shoulders of Neil Kopp and Anish Johnny or has been for these last five movies and UTA I, was pretty instrumental in hooking us up with Sony and it really I mean we had had the discussion that it wasn't happening this year and I just went to LA to see some friends before I was going to fly back home to New York and reapproach it later, and then literally the day I was going to fly home, I was out having lunch with Chris belt and I was telling him that I thought the movie wasn't going to happen, and that he should take another job. And Neil and Nish called and said it's happening. Like so, it was really bizarre. Yeah. Said, Chris, don't take another job. Yeah. Wait.
2: No, never mind. It's <laughs>
4: happening. We were getting to the car, and he, I think he was like literally going to give me a lift to the airport. Uh, I ended up staying, and we went to a camera house and picked out lenses right, you know, on that same trip. So you're living in a state of not being able to plan your life properly.
2: (laughs) So another kind of very carefully chosen aspect of this film is the cast, which includes Laura Dern, Kristen Stewart, Lily Gladstone, Michelle Williams, who you've, you've worked with several times. What is yeah. the thinking that goes in there? I mean, you know, Laura Dern, we've known for a long time. Kristen Stewart is kind of enjoying this new phase of her career, and Lily Gladstone is a relative newcomer. So can you talk a little bit about that yeah. casting process?
4: Yeah, and Jared Harris and James LeGros um, and Renée Aboujois, who I, all those three um, actors who I also just feel so lucky to have worked with. The process, uh, well, all of a sudden we were going to shoot, and it was just like is everybody really, I had really just sort of started working with that story, and that was the last piece of the puzzle. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, we're making this right now. And so Michelle and LeGro, I had worked with both of them before, and so I reached out to them, and Renee you know, I used his scene in um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller in one of my classes, and I know his voice so well, and I know that, like, I could recite that whole scene that he's in, all his parts in McCabe. So those guys all jumped in really quickly, and that was amazing. I was like, Michelle, you want to come do this? She's like, when? Next year? And I was like, no, now. <laughs> okay. Can you come now? And she did, because she's a sport. And then... uh The Laura section of the film had been put together for a longer time, and um, I I had wanted to work with her for such a long time, and I had been trying to get myself onto Enlightened because I loved that show, and I really wanted to direct a series, but only my friends got to direct those series. Uh, Todd Haynes did one and Phil Morrison did one. And so I was like, okay, I'll work with Laura this way. So she came out and... Jared I met in New York, so he had been game for a long time. And Kristen, the, the ranch story I'd had the longest, and Kristen had said uh, a long time ago she would play that role, but just sort of get in touch if it ever came together.
2: So she was someone that you would...
4: I knew her from, um, well, I loved her in The Runaways.
2: Oh, yeah, and, sure. Um,
4: and I loved Dakota Fanning. I thought her and Dakota Fanning in Ali... Uh, Shockat? Yeah, she's a, all the women are, are, are so good in that movie. And so Kristen was, uh, pals with Dakota and Dakota went and worked on a movie with my friends Richard and Wash and then whatever. It was all like kind of small world. So I had gotten the script to Kristen through those channels. I never really spoke to Kristen or met Kristen until she showed up the day before we were shooting and she was just sort of all of a sudden at my door, like, hey, dude. And I was like, all right, this is real. She's, she's here. Yeah. <laughs> but Lily, that was Sterling Harjo had made Winter in the Blood with her. And I thought she had a beautiful performance in that. And she heard about us, and we heard about her, and she got hold of the script, through. There's a casting agent in the States who just deals with Native American actors, Mm-hmm there's a lot of very talented Native American actors to be had. I mean, we looked at some really good tapes, and then Lily's tape came separately. She just sent it to us herself, and it was just, she had done the whole scene, sort of filmed herself, dressed herself up, and put herself on a location and just sort of did the whole thing. And um, I thought so. her instincts were so interesting, you know, doing something without any indicators from me at all. And so I sent her back some notes, and she did it again, and it was great. And so she she was in Missoula, so she drove down, and um, we met, and we immediately put her to work with the uh, rancher, and she just started working on the ranch, and lo and behold...
2: Yeah, and it's, a. I mean, those scenes with her and Kristen, and or just her with the horses, I mean, they're really, it's, she's really great. Yeah. So you'd mentioned, you know, Enlightened and kind of curious about or wanting to do television. Is that something you're still pursuing? And is it the stability that attracts you? or
4: No, it wasn't. I wasn't pursuing television. I just like that show. Right. I thought I could fit that show. You know, it wasn't like television per se. It was just that show. Right. I mean, teaching gives me stability. Right. But like if there was something, I can't do production for the sake of any. Like I find it the hardest thing. So it's like I have to really be into it if I'm going to do something.
2: Not going to be a hired yeah. gun who's just kind of kind of going where the where the work is. You really want to have a connection to it beyond that. It sounds like.
4: Yeah, otherwise I'd rather teach. Yeah. Yeah, but I I loved that show, and so I thought, oh,
2: maybe Mike White will do another series in that same vein, and. Yeah. I'm a huge
4: Mike White fan. I I love his work. And the combination of him and Laura together was super dynamite. I agree. That whole cast was so good. Yeah.
2: It was quite a show. Um, Well, Kelly, this has been great. And again, congrats on the film. I'm glad that it came together and was able to be made. Thanks a lot. Because it's pretty special. Thank
4: you.
0: So before we go home, we want to make some more bold predictions about the Oscar race. Guys, who's going to win best original screenplay? This is a really interesting category. Mike, you wanted to do this one. So what do you see that's cool?
1: I I don't know, man. This is a tough one where you want to give it to a bunch of people, you know, but I think Manchester by the Sea.
0: I think Kenneth Lonergan is a uh, I mean, Kenneth uh, Lonergan know, is
1: a very talented writer.
0: Beloved writer, yeah. He's
1: a really, really, really brilliant writer. And I think if the competition is Moonlight, La La Land, first of all, those guys do not have the track record. And second of all, there's a lot going on in those films that make them great that's not the screenplay. Mm-hmm. So I think Manchester by the Sea, there's also a lot of stuff going great, but it's really performances and carrying out that incredible story and that great sort of whatever it is, Bostony dialect and everything. I'm going to go with Manchester by the Sea. You know, I have a thing for this movie.
0: Kenneth Lonergan uh, lost the Best Original Screenplay Oscar to Almost Famous, which we've talked about on the show. So, you know, he's overdue. mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) For that reason alone, I will now be pushing very hard for this one.
0: There you go. All right, Joanne, I brought up Cameron Crowe, so that's your turn. I know, that's my
3: cue. Uh, (laughs) Well, I was going to say the same thing. Uh, Sorry, that's a boring answer. But I was curious if, when I saw the Q&A for Manchester, Lucas Hedges said, I believe, that it the idea was first Matt Damon and John Krasinski's idea and Kenneth Lonergan wrote it from their idea he might be really misinformed because i can't find like anything corroborating that right now but i was just wondering if Damon and Krasinski would get like original idea by Oscars by extension with Kenneth Lonergan so wait but,
1: Damon was going to be Kyle Chandler and Krasinski was going to be
3: Casey or i think the reverse The reverse weirdly. Because age-wise, it doesn't really seem that way, but I think so. Huh. But but it wasn't just that they were attached to Star. Like according to Lucas Hedges, the young lead in that movie, and he might have been misinformed. It was their idea that Kenneth Lonergan built on. So very I don't interesting. Know, I'm intrigued.
0: So you also picked Manchester. 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 All right, well, uh, Joanna just spoke in a Boston accent, so Richard, that's your (laughs) cue. (laughs) Well,
2: it's interesting that Moonlight is being considered an original, even though it's based on a play. I guess maybe they figured it was so loosely based that Uh, it it didn't really matter. Every
0: year, there's always something that just really throws you off. So
2: I would be happy if Moonlight won, I think one screenplay to look out for in the nominations field is Hell or Highwater, mm. which is an original, very just, just an original screenplay, is fun, pulpy, Western, but with something on its mind, and a movie that I think could be a sleeper. I mean, I'm not the only person saying this, a sleeper best picture nominee if it goes to 10 or something.
1: Speaking of sleepers, can I just, I just want to talk about this real quick. The Lobster, Captain Fantastic, and Swiss Army Man yeah. are all like weird movies that actually connected, found audiences this year. And I feel like we should keep them in the back of our minds, even though they're not very Oscar-y. They've all, yeah. they all got traction. And like I was saying to you, Katie, I think Vigo Mortensen for Captain Fantastic actually could slide in yeah. for a nomination. He's so good in that. I finally just watched it. Yes. And The Lobster is a really crazy screenplay. Yeah. I mean, that, that was that actually going weird- to be
0: my pick I don't know that it'll actually win but I wanted to bring it up because I yeah. feel like The Lobster really could get a nomination at least like, yeah. that is like yeah. the original screenplay is where movies like The Lobster can sneak in and that movie yeah. has I mean it premiered at Cannes a year and a half ago mm-hmm. like May of 2015 yeah. so and, and people are still talking mm-hmm. about it like mm-hmm. I really feel like it could make its way in there because it's such a it really sticks with you in that way mm-hmm And
1: Captain Fantastic is kind of a, I don't know, maybe the screenplay, the dialogue of it isn't necessarily mind-blowing, but it's such a great story. It's just a, I mean, it somehow manages to not be annoying, even though it's one of the most annoying topics I've ever heard in my life.
3: (laughs) 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 <laughs> we should do our dark
0: horses next week so we all can right, uh, yeah. celebrate all of that. So, Kenny Lonergan, it's your year, according to uh, Kenny Lonergan. most of us. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review us on iTunes if you can. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about award season and lots of other things. We're all on Twitter at Little Gold Men, And then on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Richard?
2: Rylaz, R-I-L-A-W-S. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan.
0: And Joanna? Joe wrote this. Sorry. Can I do that
1: again? Quit your J-Rob. We all remember. <laughs>
0: oh, I, lo- I missed pet Twitter handle. Okay. That was a good one. This episode was edited and produced by Ilana Milner and thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for how we're all feeling two weeks ahead of the election goes to Mike Hogan.
1: I... Wow. It... <laughs>